Hi, welcome back to Brandon Wilborn's Fantasy Fiction Podcast, where fans of classic fantasy adventures can hear the serialized audiobooks of a fellow nerd and indie author completely for free. I'm your author, narrator, and host, Brandon Wilborn. Thanks for listening today. The story portion of this episode starts right at the minute mark. Last week in The Treasure of Capric, Curian and Louise shared a little moment when she taught him how to gallop away his woes. Then they arrived at the ruins of Finn, where they encountered a witch named Duwana. The witch transformed into a flock of crows right in Curian's face before flying off to tell Lord Avasius about finding them. This week I'll be reading Chapter 10. Following that, nothing. Absolutely nothing. You'll just have to wait another week to hear me again or go back and listen to the old stuff. Now I present for your enjoyment, The Treasure of Capric. Chapter 10 Thaumaturgy They all stood still for several moments, trying to comprehend what they had just seen. We should go, Louise said. Nobody objected. They made their way carefully on the overgrown cobblestones as darkness came over Finn. After passing out of the city, Curian trotted ahead and set a fast pace away from the river, north and east, into the plains. He wanted to get as far from there as possible. The others followed without asking where he was going, and he finally slowed down and stopped after they had run about five miles. It was empty and far from any civilization, as good a space as any. They all dismounted and pulled down only their blankets and a little food for the night. Reese thrust a sword into the turf and tied the horses to the hilt, but they left the saddles on, ready to flee if necessary. Nobody spoke as they sat huddled on the ground. Curian wanted to ask questions, but couldn't think of how to break the silence. Noman sat across from him, shaking his head and mumbling to himself. Eventually, the dean stood up and paced back and forth, a dim figure in the darkness. Curian could hear him muttering, No, 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 it's not possible. Dean, Tobin said with a worried look, What's not possible? That woman, the dean pointed back toward Finn. There's no way. That doesn't happen anymore. I don't think I've ever heard of someone turning into a flock of birds, said Reese. But was it? Tobin began. Noman stopped in front of them. Thaumaturgy, magic or wonder-working, as simpler folks called it, albeit of a darker sort. Like Sage Bennett did back when the order started? Reese looked impressed. Yes and no, Noman said impatiently. Sage Bennett performed many wonders and miracles, but he never did them of himself. Every thaumaturge in our history was a man of humility and grace. They were often surprised when God chose to answer their prayers in miraculous ways. But there were others who gained something like that power through darker means. Well, if it doesn't come from God, what are these darker means? Tobin asked. I'm not certain where it comes from. I've never studied it much. I've read about rituals and conjurations that gave them unnatural strength or knowledge. But I've never heard of anything like this. The dean returned to pacing. And as I said, it doesn't happen anymore. Thaumaturgy was common in the early years of our order, when there were wars and missions from the king. Eventually, it simply stopped. Why? I don't know. Noman threw up his hands. One of the abbots tried to institute a course in thaumaturgy for a few years, but nothing ever happened. 
it seemed like something that couldn't be learned. The brothers generally assumed that God didn't need to use it anymore. Then why did you teach us to pray for miracles? Kurian asked. The more he heard Noman talk about the order, the more it bothered him. He had never quite viewed the history of the order as a dissipation of their spiritual potency, of God performing fewer miracles through their work, but it offered more evidence of their decline. Noman's face showed that he was struggling for an answer. It's what we've always done. It's part of having faith. He shrugged his shoulders. And many things are miraculous that may not seem incredible. They're just more circumstantial than supernatural. Curian folded his arms, waiting for a better explanation. Why not ask? Perhaps God will do something astonishing. That is just the sort of nonsense you spouted in each of your lectures. The brothers generally assumed, Curian mocked Noman's tone. Perhaps God will do something astonishing. You aren't certain of anything, are you? Except your rules, of course. Curian, stop. Tobin stood up in front of him. I'm sorry, he said, shaking his head. But even if the dean is right, then where are the miracles? We are caught in the middle of a war over our little treasure, and now it's obvious that one side uses witches. Stop, Louise said. We're all exhausted, and I think a little scared. She pointed a cautionary finger as Curian opened his mouth to speak. You're right, the Devasius has witches, but that isn't Noman's fault. His family has always accomplished their deceptions in unexplained ways. Maybe this has been their way from the beginning. And how are we supposed to fight back against that? I bet even Thalmer birds can die, Reese said with a chuckle. We must have faith, said Tobin. Curian almost left. Tobin was sounding more like the dean since the ordination, and he wasn't sure he could talk as freely with him anymore. Faith was the vague answer the brothers gave for every problem, and he had watched too many faces in Apifer lose hope after hearing that answer to think that it was the great cure-all. There had to be a more realistic way to face this. Don't look so disgusted, Noman said to him. Brother Hart may be more right than you think. I have told you almost all I know of miracles, and I cannot instruct you in their practice. However, today's events have made me reconsider some other information. I'm afraid something much larger may be happening in our world. We may yet see a resurgence in thaumaturgy if my suspicions are correct. He had stopped pacing and finally sat down, indicating for them all to do the same. There is something you should know. Curian sat reluctantly. Before the order was attacked, I confronted Sage Martin about sending you to negotiate with Evasius. It made no sense and flaunted some important regulations of the rule. I feared what Havasius might do to you. You were worried, Kurian said. I thought you were about to turn us into gyrovags. Never. Kurian was surprised to see genuine pain on his face. Whatever you might believe about our relationship, Mr. Abramson, I only ever did what I believed would push you to excel. You could have been a remarkable brother if you learned to accept discipline. I may have given in to frustration with you at times, and for that I am sorry, but we are straying from my intent. I'm sorry, Curian muttered. Go on. The abbot was distraught. Frantic, Noman continued. He told me that a prophet had visited him with a vision. He believed that the vision instructed him to send the three of you away in order to save the order and the compound. When the first attack came, 
he was terrified that he missed his chance, so he sent you away immediately. That was why I failed to dissuade him that night. It was like talking to a lunatic. Can you tell us the vision? Tobin said, leaning forward. The prophet said that he saw the great oak burning atop the hill, and then a voice spoke a short verse. Those walking in darkness will see a great light, release the deer, the brute, even the princely sun. On those living in the land of shadow, a light will dawn. The abbot believed that the verse spoke of you three, and that removing you from the compound would prevent the order from falling and the tree from burning. Since that interpretation was erroneous, then perhaps the prophet's vision was meant to save your lives, for sending you away at that moment clearly did. What the rest of it means, I do not know. Are you even sure it's about us? Tobin asked. I'll admit it's vague on details, Noman said. However, if it is about a trio of men at our order, then you three make the most sense, simply by starting with you, Brother Hart. After that witch called you by name, I'm convinced that the prophecy is about you, and somehow through her demonic arts she knew it. Perhaps the other part is about the treasure, Tobin added. If it is a book of great power and knowledge, then it would bring hope and light to the people. If Asius would see something like that as a threat, it might even bring the kingdom back to what it was during the time of Finn. You'd need a king for a kingdom, Louise said with her best sarcasm. The verse made Curian think of the star, and he suddenly felt compelled to say something. I think I saw a star the other night, he blurted out. Everyone stared at him as if he had transformed like the witch. Outside the apple grove. It was only for a moment and then it was gone. Louise smiled at him. He thought she knew the moment he was remembering, just before she distracted him. Are you certain? Noman leaned forward until Curian saw the wonder on his face. It was a pinpoint of light in the sky, the way you described it in the astronomy lectures. He shook his head. I'm not certain it was really there. Nobody still living has seen a star, or the sun, or the sky, Noman said with awe. Then he laughed deeply. You wanted to see the miraculous, Mr. Abramson. You've seen it. Noman looked toward the sky as if suddenly the clouds would part and reveal gloriously lit heavens. He sighed, and the others followed his gaze. This is the best news in weeks, Tobin said, then breathed deeply and lay back with his hands folded behind his head. Why is a hole in the clouds so important? Curian asked. I'm not even certain it's what I saw. He didn't understand why Tobin was suddenly so relieved. Because, my friend, it means God is still there, when I had feared that he left us. How do you know that's what it means? I have faith, Tobin said simply. You're becoming impossible. Curian picked up his blanket and walked a few yards away to go to sleep. This was exactly the sort of response to things that the Order had taught them to make. Everything could be a sign or an omen, depending on the interpretation. Now Tobin decided to hope in something that probably wasn't a sign at all, but he was finished looking for meaning in every falling leaf. He only wanted to fulfill his oath and prevent more destruction from Evasius. He had to focus on calming his breathing after wrapping himself in his blanket. The others also picked spots to sleep, and he heard Tobin and Reese whispering for several minutes. As he was on the verge of finally falling asleep, Reese called out loud enough for him to hear, Good night, Princely. Tobin and Reese giggled to each other, and Curian rolled over, not knowing if he would ever make it to sleep now.
He took a deep breath, realizing that this was their way to make peace. They were still trying to be his friends. Good night, dear brute, he said to tell them he accepted. Then he slipped into a deep sleep, in which he dreamt of a sky covered with innumerable stars that blazed like firelit gems, and people who glowed like his star, so bright and clear that they lit up the night and hurt his eyes. As one of the ten cities of the plain, Dury was still uniquely productive, despite its small population. However, its remoteness from other towns and cities meant few residents of Pollingham wanted to live there. It stood at the foot of the Northland Cliffs, at the northern edge of the plain, and was almost halfway between the ocean to the west and Avon, the furthest eastern city on the plain of Apos. People had originally settled in the natural caves found in that part of the cliffs and eventually built Dury between the river and a small forest that fanned out west and south. Even when the river dried up, the caves still offered ample water supplies for the city through hidden springs and cisterns. The forest provided a rare source of timber, as well as a varied diet that few other cities in Pollingham enjoyed. A well-maintained road ran parallel to the cliff face between Avon and the sea. Where it passed through Dury, a southerly route headed toward Pollingham Castle, for years, few had traveled these roads besides Lord Avasius's men, either soldiers or lumber carters. Captain Fallon had come to Dury several times to guard shipments of supplies along the dangerous cliff highway. While he had encountered and defeated small gangs of men who tried to waylay the shipments, he had never encountered the King of the Caves who was causing so much trouble. The man seemed to be gaining influence in the area as well. As his attacks became bolder, the other criminal activity diminished, as if they were afraid. Fallon had searched the caves in the cliff himself, but had never found a clue that he even existed, except for the reports of terrorized men. He longed to meet this king of criminals, but he never attacked when Fallon was present. That could make the difference in finally catching him. If only Fallon could be there to inspire his men and counter the madness that the man seemed to instill in the soldiers. This time he felt like he might have the opportunity. He stood outside the guard shack at Dury's southern gate, watching the road with ten of his greenest men. Seventy-five had come with him, in addition to the twenty he had sent the day before. Now he had them spread out between the three gates and patrolling the roads up to a mile from town. Twenty of them had spread out across the city in two-man teams, questioning citizens and looking for anybody suspicious. Add the score of guards posted to Dury permanently, and he was certain he would catch the Capricks if they approached the city. The first real rain of the season had begun that morning, and he smiled to himself as he watched the misery of the young soldiers standing guard with him. They crossed their arms and stomped their feet to keep warm as the water soaked through their uniforms. Of course, he shared part of their discomfort. The first hard autumn rain meant the gloomy season was upon them. The clouds that always covered Pollingham would darken and turn the world into a dim, damp twilight for almost four months. Most of the plain would get rain almost daily, and the eastern cities might have some snow. He didn't expect he would see the sun's strong glow through the blanket of clouds again until late in February. What soldier wouldn't weary in their vigilance under such conditions? Yeah, he said, grabbing blankets from the guard shack and handing them to the nearest man. Use these until I can get some cloaks sent here. Duty comes before comfort, but I know you'll do better if you're warm. The recruits thanked him. He nodded curtly and said, as he walked away, And light that watchfire early. I need you alert. 
By his guess, he had arrived at Dury at least five days before the Capricks, who had escaped on foot. However, he thought the show of force was necessary to dissuade any potential spies waiting to aid them. A few days of watching the patrols ought to plant a seed of doubt into anybody who might be sympathetic to them. He was certain he had chosen the right city to reinforce. The King of the Caves would raid the Cliff Highway most frequently and then seemed to disappear. Now that he knew his camp was in the crags on top of the cliffs, Fallon was convinced that he had a hidden means of ascent. That ruined the cliffs as a defensive feature of the city, but it gave him hope in catching his prey. Somewhere in the caves near Dury was a path to the top, which meant that the monk's guide would lead them here. All he had to do was intercept them on their way, and he would have the spy who could lead him straight to Lord Avasius's treasure. Fallon supervised the change in the watch and waited for nightfall before he left the gate. He wandered the city streets for hours after dark, avoiding the bunkhouse where the off-duty men stayed. The commanding officer of the guard had given up the attached apartment to him, but going there meant sleep, and he was no longer alone in his dreams. It was past the second watch when he could avoid sleep no longer. Returning to the apartment, he removed his sword and fell into the bed in sopping wet clothes. His body was numb from the cold rain, and the warm room made his feet and hands tingle in pain. Weariness soon overcame the sensation, and he was asleep as soon as his eyes fought their way closed. Immediately, he felt a body in the bed with him, but when he turned, he was in his bed back in Pollingham. Muna lay next to him in her black robes, the outline of her body blurred and difficult to see. Nicholas, Muna cooed, I feel like you've been avoiding me. I've been waiting so long. Her voice echoed in his head, just as her body seemed blurred to his eyes. Much to do to prepare the search here, he said, standing up from the bed. I won't let them slip away again. His side itched and burned where she had slid the talisman between his ribs. It was small, but the cut had needed stitching, and now it troubled him when they had these dream meetings. I'm certain you're doing a thorough job searching. She propped herself up on one arm and began to slowly draw her robe up, revealing inch by inch her slender, pale legs. He stood at attention as if he were giving a report to Lord Avasius. My men have secured access to the city and are patrolling the streets and the roads. That is my report for now. Behind him was the door he needed to walk through to leave the meeting and the dream. He dared not look at it until he was dismissed, but he craved dreamless sleep. But I have information for you this time, she said. The Capricks are closer than we thought. Do you know where? One of my colleagues met them in the ruins of Finn before sundown yesterday. She informed me this morning. How did they get there so quickly? They were moving with almost impossible speed. Perhaps he had underestimated their abilities and training again, or something else had happened. Did they have horses? You're so quick, she smiled at him. Looks like the guards from down Rivertown were not up to the task. I hope you are, Captain. I do enjoy working together. She beckoned with her fingers, and it felt as if she were pulling him toward her with a rope tied to his body. He resisted and stood his ground, and she laughed. They could be here as early as tomorrow, he said. I need to ensure my men are fully alert. You do that, Nicholas, she said, 
and released him from her spell of temptation with a wave. Maybe next time we speak, there'll be something to celebrate. Give my regards to our lord, he said, before turning for the door to his escape. Fallon has gotten himself in quite deep, and just like Muna, he has a cost to pay for the magic she's using on him. Meanwhile, it looks like the other Capricks are far more hopeful than Curian at the mention of his star, so much that it gives them hope in the face of their discovery of Avasius's witches. Now that the boys know about the prophecy, we get to see how that might play out. Will Tobin and Noman's optimism win out over Curian's crisis of faith? Join me next Friday as the treasure of Capric continues. That's it for this week. I wasn't joking when I said there was nothing left. But I would love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments. You can send me a message or leave me a voicemail at brandonwilborn.com forward slash contact. That link is in the description. And I really would love to hear from you if you're enjoying the show. Or even if you're not, <laughs> it's better than just talking into a void. By myself, which is what the internet often feels like. So send me a message if you if you like it or hate it, whatever. I want to hear it. Thanks again for listening to the show. Until next time, Godspeed. The Treasure of Capric is also available in print and ebook formats from all major booksellers. Find a link to your favorite retailer in the show description or go to brandonwilborn.com. That's brand on, not brand off, and Wilborn as simple as you can make it. W-I-L B-O-R-N. This has been The Treasure of Capric, book one of The King of the Caves, written and narrated by Brandon M. Wilborn. Copyright Brandon M. Wilborn. You're still listening? You're still here? The show's over. Turn it off. Go get back to your workout or your dishes or whatever you were doing right now. Go live your life. The big bump bump means the end. So listen to the music, man. It's over. I'll see you next Friday.